Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we now turn our attention to look into your word. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that you would open our eyes that we could see you. Help us to know you. Help us to rely on you as we go forward as your body. Lord, please be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's text comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thus ends the reading of the word. Well, last week we looked at five things from Paul's introduction to this letter to the Ephesian church that I hoped we would hang on to, or I use the term be anchored in, so that we do not make the mistake our brothers and sisters in the Ephesian church made. They forgot their first love. Jesus. The first thing he mentioned that we talked about was that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before we could do anything to contribute to his merciful selection of us, and that, and that should result in praise and thanksgiving. The second was that God redeemed us purchased us from slavery, slavery to sin, and forgave us because of Jesus' death. Third, that we are made children of God through adoption, becoming heirs of God, and we will remain his forever. The fourth was that it is in, we spent time on that word, in Christ, that life and blessing are found. And we should not try to find life in anyone or anything else, only in Christ. The fifth thing we looked at was that the mystery of God's will, his plan, has been made known and makes sense in and because of Jesus. Those are anchors. We need to hold on to those. 
or let them hold on to us. We pick up this week with Paul's prayer for our brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and, and he starts off by giving thanks for them, particularly because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints. The fact is that this church in Ephesus started off really well. At the time of this letter, which Paul is writing from prison, the church is now only about 10 years old. Many of the members of the church, maybe most of them, are much younger in the faith than that. And they were doing really well. Think about this. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if people thanked God for Quilcene Bible Church's faith in the Lord Jesus and our love towards the saints. I mean, that's a pretty big compliment. I, I believe some do. I, I do. And, and I think we're growing in that way. But we should hold on to that as, as a goal. Not, not that we would be better or bigger or richer, but that people would look at us and say, those people really have faith in that Jesus. And man, do they love and care for each other. But that's not what this message is going to be about. It's how he starts, though. After, after thanking God for them and their love and their faith, Paul tells them what he is asking God to give them. The first thing he asks God for is that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of him. And he says that will come about by having the eyes of their hearts enlightened with the result that they will know the hope to which God has called them, which he elaborates are the riches of his glorious inheritance. The second thing he prays is that they will know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward them, in them, which was the same power that was working when Christ was raised from the dead and seated in glory, which Paul goes on to describe in more detail with beautiful imagery of all things subjected to him who is the head and we are his church, and we are his body. The first thing that, that he prayed was that they would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The NIV ends verse 17, that section, with these words. That the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better that we may know him better. Just think about that one for a bit. Know him better. Know God better. What does that mean? When I was here the first time, I got to know Mark Applin a little. Uh, we had gone on a men's retreat. We had talked more, and, and sometimes even on big issues. However, during round one, which was the first time I served as your pastor... Uh, partly due to my issues, partly due to Mark's work schedule, and partly due to this thing called life, I simply did not get to know him that well. In just the two and a half months I've been back, 
I have served on the elder board with him. I've watched him work diligently on the community closet and worked alongside him for a little bit. Um, have heard his heart and mind in a number of conversations, had dinner at his home, and been in a Wednesday evening Bible study with him, just, just to say a few things. I know him better. And, and for what it's worth, I really like him. Spending time with someone, doing things with them, you get to know them better. But that isn't what Paul is praying for. Knowing someone in biblical terminology, as Paul was using it, is so much more than that. It's quite interesting when you think about it that knowing in the Bible is frequently used in reference to the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. For instance, in Genesis 4.1, it says that Adam knew his wife and they had a child. There are a lot of other similar references, and, and we know this. But knowing is not about sex. Biblical knowing involves the idea of an intimate, personal relationship. Knowing in the biblical sense is really about relationship. When Paul says that he wants the Ephesians to know God better, he's talking about enlarging their relationship with him, not, not merely gaining book knowledge on God. Certainly, knowing facts helps. But growing in a relationship involves more than that. And one of the key things it requires is personal disclosure. Taking off your clothes in the case of a husband and wife, sharing successes and failures and struggles as in the case of two friends, or hearing a child's heart in the case of a parent who really wants to know their child. But, but how does such disclosure work with God? I mean, mutual disclosure with the God of the universe who knows everything already kind of seems a little lopsided, and it is. The irony of it is that as we go through the process of disclosing our stuff to God, we actually get to know him better. This person once told me about a sin that he had committed and that he really believed he needed to confess to his wife, but couldn't or just wouldn't do it. He referenced the situation like being in a prison cell. He was trapped unless he told his wife. But there was fear in telling his wife. And then one day he did it. He disclosed his deep secret and was expecting the worst and she said she already knew. And she said she still loved him. And she had forgiven him a long time ago. He had kept himself trapped in that cell. And the whole time, the door was wide open. The disclosure of his secret didn't change her one bit. It changed him. And he gained a better understanding of his wife and her love for him, and her forgiveness. In many ways, that is how it is with God. He already knows. However, we, and as odd and illogical as it is, often live like he doesn't, and we stay locked in our cells. 
But when we tell him about those things, it isn't that he gains any knowledge about us, but we gain an understanding of him. And we know him better after telling him the stuff and we hear are about forgiveness and his grace and his faithfulness even when we're not. Getting to know God better, growing in relationship with God involves disclosure, taking off our clothes, confession, or openness on our part to God. But even that isn't what Paul is really praying about. Yes, it will help us know God better, but Paul was talking about something even more than that. Paul was praying that God would do the disclosing of himself to them. Now, first of all, God is not in a prison cell or hiding something from us. God's not trying to keep secrets. And we talked about that a bit last week when I mentioned the mystery of God's will and plan that are now understandable in Christ. But, but there are things about God that we cannot really know, far beyond facts and figures and his will, that are beyond our grasp. And knowing God in this way is not possible unless God himself reveals himself to us, discloses himself to us. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. Paul is praying that God himself, via the Holy Spirit, will give us wisdom and revelation and knowledge of himself. And my brothers and sisters, that is amazing. There are important people everywhere, and and they do not want to know me, and they clearly do not want to be known by me, definitely not deeply relationally known by me. They don't even know I exist. And these are people. God is a little more important than them. Many people whom I pray for daily, including family and extended family members and friends, do not really want me to know them intimately. Yet the king of kings, the creator of all, not only does he know me completely, warts and all, but he wants me to know him. And and for me to have an intimate relationship with him. That is amazing. But how does this getting to know God better come about? Paul tells us, and he says, by by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may understand what he has basically already done and given us. The eyes of our heart enlightened. And while we wrap our minds around that metaphor, think about that. Eyes of our heart. What I really want us to hear is the word enlightened. 
This is something done to us. Not something we do ourselves. And that someone who does that to us is the Holy Spirit, God himself. God enlightens us. God turns the lights on so that we can see, so that we can know him. Remember, the audience Paul is writing to is one whose faith and love is already commendable. These are faithful Christians he's writing to. Yet Paul still prays that they will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Practically, what does this mean to us? What it means to me is that I am going to pray more, that my eyes and your eyes will be enlightened so that you can know him more. He's the only one that can make it happen. Absolutely, we should continue to spend time with him and talk to him more and listen to him more and learn about him and disclose ourselves to him and talk about the prison cells we've got ourselves in. But what we really need to do is ask that God himself, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see all that he has already done and is doing and blessed us with. We need to see that. Do you remember the scene in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the last battle? is. If you haven't read that series, it's the best. <laughs> but there's a scene in the last battle when the dwarves who who have refused to believe in Aslan, who is the Christ figure, or even to choose sides between Aslan or the bad god, um, they're, they're insistent that dwarves are for dwarves only. These dwarves were sitting basically in paradise, but because of their self-centered mindset, they were blind to the wonders Aslan had already provided and even to their own situation. They were in paradise and thought they were in a dirty old stable. And when Aslan put a feast in front of them, they, they would eat, and then they thought it was rotten cabbage or dirty straw, and that the, the drink was dirty water. The eyes, the eyes of their heart were not opened, and they refused to open them, even as Aslan tried to coax them. I do not want to be a dwarf. I want God to open my eyes so that the Holy Spirit will allow me to see him. I will be praying more, and I am, since I've been prepping this message, God, please open the eyes of my heart that I may see who you are and what you have done with such clarity that I will know you more that I will grow in the intimacy of relationship with you and in appreciation of you. Knowing God more it is more than knowledge. It is growing in relationship with God, which is brought about by God himself, revealing himself to us and granting us sight to see who he really is and what he has done and already given us. Why don't we pray that more often for each other? For the ones we love. Like Paul loved these saints who were already faithful 
to the Lord and commendable in their love and their faith. Why don't we pray that more for others and for ourselves? That's a takeaway from this message. The second thing I want to look at is Paul's prayer that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward them that is at work in them. Do you realize that according to this text, that the life you now live in Christ, if you're a Christian, is under and according to the same power that raised Christ from the dead and more. It is the same power that has seated Christ on high, far above all authority and power and dominions, and more. It's the same power that has caused all things to be under Christ's feet and under his body, the church. That's the power that is in us who believe in Jesus. We are not running on low-budget fuel here. Our power, the thing that makes us alive and gives us the ability to be an arm or a toe or a lip or an eye of the body of Christ, is the Holy Spirit, God himself. If we're relying on ourselves, we're not relying on who we really are. We, who have Christ as our Lord and Savior, are not being directed by God from the outside. He is not merely standing alongside us, coaching us, nor is he pushing us or pulling us or carrying us through life as if he's external to us. The Christian life is possible and properly lived because God is in us with the same power behind Christ's resurrection and the creation of the heavens and the earth. God himself is in us, empowering us. He is and must be our source. Think of our Christian journey as a bike ride. Many of us try to make it on a traditional bike, pedaling as hard as we can, enjoying the downhills, struggling with the uphills. We seem to act like God has taught us how to ride that bike And we are then simply to ride it as best and as far as we can. No power from God. He he told us what to do. It's all on us. That's not the Christian life. We also are not on one of those new e-bikes, which I have yet to ride, but I think they'd be a lot of fun. Apparently, there are two kinds. There are the pedal assist kind, that basically supplement your own pedaling so you can hum up the hills with the same ease as if you're pedaling on the path, on, a, on the flat. Uh, there are also those that actually have throttles that you can engage the motor uh, when you want. You can take over if you don't feel like pedaling anymore. You just engage the throttle. Some of us live our lives or try to live our Christian lives like we are on a pedal assist bike. I do my part. He helps me do my part. Some of us live our lives like we are on the kind with a throttle. Sometimes we do the pedaling. Sometimes we let Jesus take over. For what it's worth, 
neither of those are what Paul was talking about when he was praying that they would understand the immeasurable, great power towards us who believe. And it also isn't a motorbike that is entirely powered by God, and we control God's power by how much we turn the throttle. That is candidly rather arrogant to think that we possess that much control over the all-powerful God that we can merely sit on him and use him to get him to get where we want to go at our pace when we want to go. The truth be told, when we're not walking our Christian life properly, we're doing all of those. The power that Paul is referencing is a power that is not in the bike. It's in us. We're not using God to get somewhere, nor is he merely helping us. He is in us with all his power via the Holy Spirit. He is powering us. If we've been, a, if we've been born again, he is in us. If we want to know his power, the only thing we can do is let him live through us and do what he wants to do. I love the fact that the text ends with the reference to us as his church being his body, Jesus being the head. Now, we, we know this imagery, but it really does matter that we grasp it. The body and the head are not separate. The head is the source. Our purpose is to be what we are, which is his body that does what the head wants us to do, and his power enables us to do it. So what does that mean? It, it means that we, when we, the church, encounter something, it isn't as if Christ says, well, Toe, you're on your own on this one. Do your best and on your own power. That's not how it works. No, when we, his body, encounter things, we are encountering them in the very power of the Holy Spirit with the same power that Christ raised, used to raise Christ from the grave. And nothing in all creation is able to stand in front of that. In fact, all will bow. Does this mean we always get our way or that we are never injured or, or hurt or struggle? A few weeks ago, we talked about the will of God and, and how, it's, how it doesn't always make sense to us and, and how at times things just do not appear to be what God has planned and, and definitely not what we want or even particularly what we think would be best. We, we can even feel that we, his body, the church, have lost or that or that we're losing. But that is not the truth. When Christ's body is confronted by whatever, we must know that Christ's body has the power to vanquish and accomplish anything. But we are not the head. He is. He, he knows the whole plan. Everything. We do not. So while we should 
always remember that we have as his body the power to vanquish any enemy, the head may choose to let the enemy appear to win. He gave us a great example of this when he could have called down a legion of angels, and yet he let them appear to beat him and scourge him and spit on him and whip him and murder him on a cross. It looked like he lost. No one could have orchestrated such a path to an ultimate victory. But he did. He knows things. We need to remember that he knows things we do not. And he has not and will not and cannot lose. That means we, his church, cannot either. We have to remember that he is in us who believe in him as Lord and Savior. He is and always will be. And he is the power that nothing can defeat. Well, this might make some think that they are an Aladdin with a genie lamp. That, uh, that's not the point, And that's not the truth. He is the head. We are Christ to the world, doing what he told us to do and empowered by him to do it. With his power in us, we are enabled to be truly alive in a dying and lost world. And he will accomplish his ends. He will accomplish his ends, which will be that every knee will bow to him. And he will receive the glory he deserves. And while we might not always get to see his power exercised through his body in the way we think it should be, we must know that he is in control and remember that he is in control and he is accomplishing his ends. This should give us boldness. And the other thing is we should never fear. Never. Why? We can look around and see the absolute lunacy of our society. We can see the awful things that are happening with the slaughtering of babies on the altar of the God of selfishness. We can see the destruction of children through mutilation by perverts. We can hear heresy running rampant within communities that say they belong to Jesus. We, we can look and see what appears to be the collapse of a society that once seemed to honor God. It's easy to think the church is losing. But we have not. And we will not. And we are not. We have the power of God in us. Power that made Christ's resurrection happen and that will make our resurrection happen. This earth and the things of it, including us and our bodies, are passing away. We, his church, are not. Our 
Our head knows things we do not know, including time and history and the hearts of men and women. And we absolutely do not have any reason whatsoever to lose hope or feel defeated. Christ's church will prevail. It already has. The enemy is flailing in anguish and defeat and trying to destroy whatever he can. And it might not make sense and it might even hurt. Yet we have zero reason to fear or fret. For we have the immeasurable greatness of the power of God at work in us. And nothing can prevail against that. We are doing this walk with the Ephesian church so that we might avoid the mistake that they made when they forgot their first love, Jesus. And, and he rebuked them for that. And he gave them a very dire warning. We do not want to make that mistake. Ten years in, they were praiseworthy for their faith and their love. But perhaps they did not focus on knowing God as Paul prayed they would. Perhaps they gave in to fear and feeling that as the Roman Empire was slaughtering Christians, that somehow God really isn't in control or in them. And they gave in to this thought that the church will be defeated or it's losing. Perhaps they forgot that we really do have God in us, living through us. If you're a believer, manifesting himself to the world, a world that will one day bow before him in praise and fear. Let us not make the mistake they made. Let us keep our faith in Jesus. Let us keep the love and care for each other. Let us hope that people will see that in us. And let us know him better by disclosing to him. But more importantly, by letting him disclose himself to us by enlightening our eyes such that we will focus on and see him and what he has done. And let us surrender to him and trust his power, the power that raised Christ from the dead and cling to that reality that he is and will be victorious regardless of what we see around us. And then let us go forward as his body and let us be his body that he has empowered us to be for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it is impossible for us to thank you for what you have done by calling us and making us your children. And our Father, we want to know you more. Please enlighten the eyes of our heart that we can see you and focus in on who you are and what you've done. And Lord, help us to set aside these efforts to power ourselves, but instead to rely on you in us. Holy Spirit, empower us. Use us 
for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.